and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Anne Brannan. I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Maryland, the most medieval state in America. And we're so happy to be recording at the moment because we have spent 45 minutes trying to figure out why sometimes the little microphones are being recognized and sometimes they're not. And I don't know. It's like it's all tech stuff and we're medievalists. (laughs) Today we're talking about the University of Paris. Speaking of medievalists, we're talking about the University of Paris strike in 1229. Now, to be fair, the strike is not the people behaving badly, that's just a bargaining tool. The people behaving badly came before the strike. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> they were quite bad. It, a great deal of badness, yes. On Shrove Tuesday in 1229, it was in March that year, uh, the carnival, which of course, as you all know, means farewell to meet, was near its end because that's what's happening on Shrove Tuesday. It's the last day before Lent starts and you have to eat up all your meat as well as all your pancakes because you're about to have 40 days of no meat, um, no eggs, no dairy, uh, no butter. Yeah, you have to, you're going to have to eat a whole bunch of salt fish. Um, any rate, it was nearing its end. And the carnival involved, the carnival, the the time before Lent involved, as it does now, a great deal of drinking and behaving badly and whatnot. And so that's what was going on. It's it's kind of like now if you go down to um if you go down to New Orleans, let's say, uh, for Mardi Gras, which is, you know. Fat Tuesday, it's the same thing, Shrove Tuesday. You go down to Mardi Gras, you party, 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 party. And then at midnight, um, at mid, you have to party very hard because at midnight on um, Shrove Tuesday, the mayor and the police um, come through Bourbon Street. They shut everything down. And so then it's all over because then you're having Lent during which you have enormously good behavior or not, as we are about to see. At any rate, it was Paris. It was 1229. It was Shrove Tuesday. Everybody was really, really drunk. And uh, there was um, over in uh, Saint-Marcel, which is like a suburb of Paris, there is a bunch of students and they didn't want to pay the bill for their drinks. And so the tavern owner and other townspeople beat them up. So the next day, And I want to point out, Michelle, that this was on Ash Wednesday. Everybody should be going around being really sorry for all their sins and having ashes on their heads. But no, what they did, very bad. The students came back with friends, beat up the taverner, destroyed the tavern, and rioted in the streets and damaged a whole bunch of property. This was a very bad start to Lent, quite frankly. However, the students were covered legally on account of benefit of clergy because they weren't clergy and they weren't necessarily planning on being priests, but they had, they had the right of clergy because the university was run by the church. So, so the townspeople filed complaints with the church court, which didn't really want to do anything about this because they, a, a, a few years before this in, uh, you know, in 1209, 
Cambridge University had been founded by students and teachers who had left Oxford after some students, three students got hung in Oxford. A woman died and the Oxford townspeople thought it was those students, whether or not it was, I'm really unclear because there wasn't any like trial or nothing like that. Anyway, they were upset. And so they went and founded Cambridge and Paris, the Paris University did not want for that kind of thing to happen. Everybody to run to Toulouse or something like that. No good. So they weren't going to do anything. But, but, however, another however, Blanche of Castile was at that time regent of France on account of her child, Louis the um, Ninth, being really young. Um, Michelle, do you remember that Blanche is the one who later is going to keep, try to keep the Shepherd's Crusade out of the left bank where the university is trying to keep more riots from happening? Do you remember that? Because we already had that during the um, when we were talking about the Crusades. You know, I didn't remember that. That is who it is. At any rate, Blanche demanded that the students be punished. Um, unfortunately, the way that this got handled was that the city guard went out and killed a bunch of students that they found in the street who probably had not had anything to do with the Lenten riot whatsoever. And so the university shut down. Now this strike lasted for two years. And in that time, there were no classes. The students disbanded. Some of them went to be students elsewhere. Um, some of them just took leave of absence for a while, perhaps still drinking in the streets of Paris. I don't know. Some of them went and got jobs, I think, but not clear about that. But at any rate, they weren't there. The Latin Quarter, which is where the students mostly were living. And, and why is it called Latin Quarter, Michelle? Do you remember? I would assume it's because that's the official language of the university. Yes, because that's what that's what the students are all speaking with each other. First of all, because they're supposed to. And second of all, because they come from all over Europe and speak different languages. And so the thing that they have in common is Latin. So there's which, however, I have to say the townspeople don't really speak. And so yeah, anyway, yeah, yet another. Then the Latin Quarter was hard hit economically because the university was a big part of the economy there. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's really this kind of mixed blessing. I mean, you want the students to come spend money at your tavern and you want them to drink enough that, you know, they're spending a lot of money, but perhaps they're getting drunk. You don't want them to destroy the tavern, you know, at any rate. It's encouraging to know that this has been a problem Basically since the beginning, though. Since the beginning, yeah, because it's, um, it's a bunch of young people. And in Paris, they were younger than they were in Bologna. So you entered, you entered the School of Arts like maybe 13 or 14. I mean, you know, yeah. and, and you could become one of the uh, masters, uh, I think, in your 20s. And in Bologna, which was focused on the law, you didn't enter until later and you could be a master till like around 30. So, yes. So the students of Paris tended to be young and they were away from home and they were all hanging out together and and being a, it was a big deal. But more on that later. All right. It wasn't until April of 1231 that the Pope put the University of Paris under direct papal authority, which took it out from under both the secular authority and the authority of the local church and allowed the masters to suspend lectures for all kinds of reasons. It gave the university actually much more power, basically. But the whole thing about the benefit of clergy and um, the students not being subject to the local law is that clergy were 
subject to ecclesiastical law. And so even if you murdered somebody, you went to the church court. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> definitely you just all you're doing is smashing up a tavern. I mean, you know, whatever. The church court didn't have to do anything about it. And the secular court couldn't do anything at all. By the way, this was not the first um, riot, student riot in um, in Paris. The first one, the first student riot in Paris had been in 1200 when a German stu student's servant um, had been set upon in a tavern. All this stuff starts in taverns, every single bit of it, I'm just saying. Uh, started in tavern and, and compatriots came to his aid and beat up the taverner and the citizens then assaulted a university building and killed a bunch of students and boy did the king come down on them it was very sad at any rate so so my question, how did all of this get started why are the why are the students rioting in this so i will now explain it's background time do we still don't have a background song do we do <laughs> We need one, though. <laughs> we totally need a background song. The European universities had evolved from schools that were cathedrals and monasteries, um, and cl the classes being taught by monks. Pope Gregory initiated reforms that emphasized canon law and study of sacraments. And that was near the end of the 11th century. And in 1079, Pope Gregory decreed that there would be regulated cathedral schools established. And because of this emphasis on learning, canon law and the stuff about sacraments, education became necessary if you wanted to go up the church ladder and the schools grew and they grew kind of quickly and this caused problems because when they got bigger it was harder for the smaller towns to like deal with them at all and so they went to the cities and they ended up having more teachers where before they maybe had only one at any rate, the University of Bologna was established in 1088, Paris was 1150, Oxford was 1167, and Paris was associated with the cathedral at Notre Dame. Fair enough. They had different kinds of structures, though. In Bologna, the students hired and paid the teachers. In Paris, the church paid the teachers. In Oxford and Cambridge, the crown and state paid the, the teachers. Uh, which meant that um, when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, the universities were okay because they were not under the church. <laughs> Yay, Oxford and Cambridge. Ah. Anyway, yeah, which was not going to be a problem in Paris and Bologna because people didn't dissolve the monasteries there, did they? That was, an, that was a little English fad. All right, because the masters of Paris were not paid by the students. They ran things and they became, and Paris became the coveted place to go be a teacher because throughout Europe, because it was like, woo, where you really got to be, you had so much power. Um, so that was nice. And in Paris there, um, I'm going to explain this now, there were four faculties. First, there was arts, which was um, the biggest and which you had to graduate from in order to go into one of the other three. And for those of you who are interested, I'm now going to tell you what the arts are. Grammar, rhetoric, dialectics, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. There was a strong emphasis in the universities on science. They were Aristotle-based. And once you graduated from the arts, you went in, You could go into one of the um, other the three higher schools, which were medicine, law, and theology. 
So that's how the schools divided. The students were divided into four nations, nations, which were France, Normandy, Picardy, and England. So theoretically, you were in a group of students that spoke your language, your native tongue, although um, really Latin, you were supposed to, you were supposed to be conversing in Latin, and that's how you conversed with all the students. But England, the, the nation of England, also included students from Germany and Scandinavia and Eastern Europe, and eventually it started getting called the German nation. But at any rate, so all those people, basically all the people who weren't from someplace in France or <laughs> yes. near France were all gathered together. All yeah, right. I, I like that the uh, three of the four nations are bits of modern day France. Yeah, they're all bits of modern day France, but they were not, they were, they were totally different then. So, hey, totally different. Yeah, they spoke different languages and everything. Though, if you had come in from, oh, I don't know, let's say York, they were all going to sound the same to you, I'm telling you. And the students were, um, because they were under clerical law, they were, they were, they were associated with clerics. They had tonsures, at least in Paris, they did. They had tonsures that, you know, they shaved the top of their heads and they wore cler- clerical robes. And so that's where we get town and gown. Okay. And the gown with the with its hood and its cap clearly marked students. They had the colors of the university that they were associated with. <laughs> Still do. Still do. <laughs> Just want to say the University of California at Berkeley, if you get a doctorate there, you get gold braid on your polyester gown. I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> My husband is has his degrees from Carnegie Mellon University and their hood their hood is Andrew Carnegie's plaid. It is the plaid. It's very striking. Yeah. So when you get a group of professors together for like, you know, you have to for the for matriculation or commencement or whatnot, and we, we wear the robes because, you know, we're being all official and making the uh, parents feel better about the whole deal. We're very colorful, actually, but they used to be all black robes and you would have the colors of the university. Now the the there are lots of different colors, actually. Forget where those red ones are from, but those are really exciting. Anyway, so that you could tell who they were. It wasn't like you could go around being a student and behave politely and people would know who you were. Hence getting murdered by the city guard in Paris, even if you hadn't been in the riot, because you totally looked like a student. And, you know, the robes also make it clear that you're not doing physical labor. It's a status, a social status, besides marking you as exempt from the law. And so there's a lot. There's a lot of social tension, emotional tension, political tension in between the town's people and the students. Because the towns need the money. That's why the strikes mattered. Because it isn't like you were like, you horrible students, go away, you nasty students. Our lives are so good without you. And then they leave and it's better. No, no, they leave and you have no money because they're the ones who were renting they were renting the lodging that you were renting out and they were eating in your restaurants and they were eating and they were drinking in your pubs and they were buying your cloth and, you know, your, your whatever it is they're buying books and whatnot. Yeah. Paris has an amazing book trade building up around the university. Yes. So the universities acted much like guilds did in that they could negotiate, they negotiated rents for lecture halls and lodgings because originally they didn't actually have their own buildings. They rented places to teach and then they, then they would get their own buildings and these buildings ended up being close around together, you know, so they're in an area now. <laughs> Although this often kind of sprawls out throughout the town, almost like Cambridge, Cambridge University takes up a lot of space, you know, in Cambridge and 
different ways. And they could leave if they didn't like the situation. They didn't have to stay there. And because the students came from all over Europe and they and were una- often were unable to converse with the townspeople, unless I guess if they came from one of those three French schools, they were just so difficult. And also they had manners and customs, which were not those of the places they were in. Uh, but it's some um, not just students, but the universities themselves that could be problematic. They gobbled up city lands. They passed laws that affected the town. And in 1270, for instance, Henry the Fourth of England, at the request of the University of Cambridge, banned tournaments and jousting in Cambridge and within five miles out of Cambridge. So not just not just tournaments and joustings banned in the university. No, no, the city itself. And if you were in Cherry Hinton, you couldn't do it either because you were within five miles of Cambridge. You know, it's it's tacky. In 1549, Henry VI allowed Cambridge to banish any prostitutes or women of ill repute from four miles around Cambridge. In 1604, I don't know if you know about this one, James I would allow the university to prohibit plays, except in Latin, which were all happening in Cambridge University, and bull baiting and interludes and um, comedies and games for five miles around Cambridge. So no traveling players could go through whatsoever. <laughs> Rude. So much for that. So the, the strike at Paris was uh, very effective. That lasted for two years and then they came back with more power. Uh, it was very effective in terms of the people who were striking. So, hey. It's really hard to overestimate how central the University of Paris becomes. We have important universities now, but, you know, is MIT more more important than Harvard? Eh, eh, eh. They're both important, but the <laughs> University of Paris, the University of Paris is the place to be. Yeah. Well, there were um, there were divisions, and the University of Paris was the place to be if you were a theologian. Paris focused on theology, which is one of the reasons the students can be younger because Bologna focused on law. Yes, 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 and they're they're a little bit older. Mm, they're a little bit older, but but it's definitely notable. We could spend a solid three months, if not four months, just doing university related crimes and the you know conflicts with the towns there's there's so many times that this happens over the course of the middle ages yeah we're just going to focus on two of them we're doing paris today and we thought we'd do um the saint scholastica riot at oxford also but yeah no the entire <laughs> there are there end up being universities throughout europe as there are today, and there end up being completely bad behavior in between the town and gown people all through the Middle Ages, as there are today. And I would not say that it's necessarily always one side or the other that's the aggressor. It's just it's just tension that every once in a while breaks out into something else, often because, you know, alcohol's involved and now there's no longer good decision making. Yeah, there's a alcohol seems to be involved in almost all of the incidents. Yeah. I did not know um, a whole lot about the history of where the universities come from. Um, I did know some stuff already about the book trade around Paris because I'd done reading for that for um, a different project. The book trade. So the book trade starts up in the Middle Ages. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, the University of Paris and the need of the students to have textbooks is one of the driving factors moving book copying from being an exclusively monastic activity to, to one in which uh, most of the work is being done by secular copyists. Oh, because that makes the sense. demand is just so high. Right. There is, there's a system um, called the PECIA. This is probably how this is pronounced, P-E-C-I-A, where you have textbooks at the, at the local Scrivener near the, the university because there's a bunch of bookshops. There's like 28 bookshops around the University of Paris, which is a lot. That's, that's a whole lot. That is really, that would be a whole lot, you know, now. That's a whole, that's a yeah. whole lot, yeah. There probably are not 28 bookshops around the University of Paris now. So you have all of these bookshops and they have um, the textbooks that the students are required to have, but you can check out, you can rent a choir at a time to take it home and copy it and then bring it back and rent the next choir. Ah, oh, so you're copying your own texts. Uh, yes, if you're not wealthy enough to buy your own copy, you can, for a lesser amount, rent the choir, choir by choir and take it home and copy it. So that's kind of like a really intense version of taking notes. <laughs> and it's also very similar to something we do now, right? Now you can either buy your textbooks or you can rent them. So we still have a system that differentiates, you know, between how much cash on hand you have at the beginning of the semester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably learn a lot having to copy your textbook. I would, yeah, I, I would, would think you did. You would. I think we think you would. But it's definitely less expensive. It's not really the same thing as um, buying a textbook and then taking your yellow highlighter and highlighting the entire thing, which I more or less I've seen done, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you're actually reading it <laughs> even even with having to buy your parchment and then you know with the rental fee it's still less expensive significantly less expensive to get your textbook that way than right. by just buying a pre-made copy of the book but although the bookstores did offer that because you know some students are dirt poor you know the way we think about the kind of stereotypical undergraduate but some of them are not some of them are sort of from better, more well-to-do families and are, they tend to actually be kind of the troublemakers because they're kind of marking time before they go off and do something else and may or may not actually be intending to get a degree. <laughs> well, this has not changed, has it? No, no, it felt very, I mean, the thing that I walk away with is that I knew that a whole ton of modern university things are from the medieval university, but I didn't know exactly how many or that they've been there from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, for example, we have some 14th century, really nasty whining from, let me pull this up, from Richard de Bury. So an Englishman, in, an Englishman is complaining bitterly. <laughs> so Richard Debury, 
who is not a nobody, okay? He lives from 1281 to 1345. He studied at Oxford. He was chosen to be the tutor to Prince Edward, the future King Edward III. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. So in 1345, he wrote a book called um, Philobiblon. And in it, he talks about his love of books and his complete dislike of his fellow undergraduates. His fellow undergraduates from when he was an undergraduate. Right. He. This is his view of, I said fellow because it's not like he wasn't ever a student. He's not commenting from outside the university entirely, right. but he is now commenting as an adult um, and actually towards the end of his life because he dies in 1345. He is commenting on student behavior as he sees it at that point. And this is kind of lengthy, but I, but I think it's worth it. So this is student behavior at Oxford. He, he, he went to school at Oxford and did he teach there also? No, he studied at Oxford, but then he became the tutor to the crown prince. All right. So he, yes. All right. All right. And he, he's a, he's an official in the, of the King of England, although he was also Bishop of Durham and then high okay. chance and then high <laughs> chancellor of England. In 30, so he's a, right. kind of a big deal. Yeah. So all right. It, here it's gonna sound it's gonna sound like the most cranky person at a faculty meeting ever. <laughs> you may happen to see some headstrong youth lazily lounging over his studies. And when the winter's frost is sharp, his nose running from the nipping cold drips down, nor does he think of wiping it with his pocket handkerchief until he has bedewed the book before him with the ugly moisture. <laughs> Would that he had before him no book but a cobbler's apron. His nails are with fetid filth as black as jet with which he marks any passage that pleases him. He distributes a multitude of straws, which he inserts to stick out in different places so that the stalks remind him of what his memory cannot retain. Mm. These straws, because the book has no stomach to digest them and no one takes them out, distend the book from its wanted closing and at length, at length being carelessly abandoned to oblivion, go to decay. He <laughs> does not fear to eat fruit or cheese over an open book or carelessly carry a cup to and from his mouth. And because he has no wallet at hand, he drops into books the fragments that are left. Constantly chattering, he is never weary of disputing with his companions, and while he alleges a crowd of senseless arguments, he wets the book lying half open in his lap with sputtering showers. Aye, <laughs> and then hastily folding his arms, he leans forward on the book and by a brief spell of study invites a prolonged nap. <laughs> and then, by way of mending the wrinkles, he folds back the margin of leaves to no small injury of the book. So he's so cheesed at how he sees people mistreating books. <laughs> bad behavior, bad behavior on the part of students toward the books. I like the part about using straws as bookmarks, which apparently is not a good idea because, you know. 
it's like using your pen as a bookmark in that it distorts it, but then also then it decays. And then and, it decays. You know, yeah, it decays. I'm pretty sure that it hasn't been, you know, more than a couple of years that there was a, a viral picture going around of somebody who had returned right now a book to the library with a toasted cheese sandwich in it as a as a bookmark. <laughs> so Oh God. So he's quite a he's quite annoyed with the bad behavior of the students. So um in terms of sources, um I read I read a book from 2008 called The University in Medieval Life, 1179 to 1499. And that that is a pretty nice general introduction. It's it's mended for a it's meant for a general reader. Um, and one thing that's nice about it is it provides a lot of cultural context. Oh, that is very good. What else is going on in the Middle Ages? Yeah, because so often when you're focusing on one thing, you kind of are missing the ways in which whatever it is ties to everything else. Hence me mentioning Blanche of Castile. <laughs> yes. So that's that would be the place to start if you're interested in the university and how it got started. The author is um, pretty well, pretty well versed in this the scholarship. The other thing I read is an is a much older book. Uh, I, I was I was pleasantly surprised by both of them because the University of Medieval Life is published by McFarland and McFarland books. Some of them are really great and some of them are not so great. The, the quality can really vary with, with McFarland. But the other one is from 1895 and it's, it's known to be a uh, seminal study of the creation of the universities. Yeah. And I wasn't, I almost didn't read it because I was expecting it to be super boring. Okay. <laughs> I, I will say that the author whose name is Hastings Rashdall. <laughs> That's a good name. That's a Hastings. great name. I was deeply misled by his Wikipedia page as to what he was going to be like, because he is listed as, quote, an English philosopher, theologian, historian, and Anglican priest, who was also the son of an Anglican priest, and whose other really well-known work is called The Idea of Atonement and Christian Theology. Now, I am really super sorry for stereotyping, but I expected his book to be way dry. I thought it, uh, this sounds like a person who who focuses on the boring. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I was really surprised to get over to his book and find out that it is it is full of sass. It is <laughs> spectacularly full of sass. The seminal work on the universities is full of sass. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> the, the preface starts out with sass. He talks about how he never really intended to write this book. It came out of an essay. He won this contest in 1883. And then, I don't know, something happened and he ends up writing this book. Um, here's the quote. The essay was, of course, written in less than a year. The revision has occupied more than 11. So he's, he's, he's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, if you revise an essay into a book, it does sort of take a while. Oh my gosh. So the book has, the the first, he has two volumes, and 
the first one has three sections. So the third section is about Paris. So I read the section about Paris and he pulls no punches. So my (laughs) God. (laughs) So get this, get this. This is on the first page. He's complaining about um, Deboulet's book. Okay. He's, he's telling us what he thinks about a book about the university by an, a scholar whose last name is Duboulet. His inaccuracies and inconsistencies are only equaled by his tedious prolexity. He was <laughs> perhaps... Oh, God, it gets better. Oh, this is my favorite kind of scholarly writing. <laughs> he was perhaps the stupidest man that ever wrote a valuable book. <laughs> it's page one (laughs) yeah he so he lets you know where where he stands as a as a writer on all this oh my god the next page he has a phrase about he's still going on with you know he he, he's talking his he he's very he's very straightforward with his opinion about previous scholarship so on the All next page, sucked, he, apparently. Uh, yeah, he describes so-and-so as having attacked with the characteristic bitterness of the 17th century scholar. <laughs> I, as I told you earlier, I apparently was under the mistaken impression that people in the 19th century had a few more fucks to give, but he has none. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the footnotes. This is the stuff he's willing to say in the main text. Oh, in no, fo- footnotes, no. There must be actual gunpowder <laughs> oh in the my footnotes. God. In the footnotes, at one point he says, I have no idea where so-and-so got the idea that that says that, because it does not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally going and finding this book. This sounds like a very, very, very good book. <laughs> Books I want to read before I die. Oh, my up God. There. He, has, he, has, he has so many amazing quotes. Here, here, I've got to give you a couple more. <laughs> the myth which attributes the foundation of the University of Paris to Charles the Great is one which ought long since to have ceased to be mentioned by serious historians, even for the purpose of refutation. <laughs> Boom. I'd love to hear what he has to say about the Droptus in your. Oh my God. So he talks, one of my favorite pieces in here, among, um, just in addition to all the snark, because there's so much of it. Um, he talks about a bunch of myths that develop fairly quickly about where the University of Paris came from. Uh huh. And that's really fascinating. He talks about this myth that develops that it was started by Charlemagne. The University of Paris seems to be really interested in pushing its history backwards. Partly because Bologna had come before. That's why Cambridge pushes its history back also because, you know, it actually spun off from Oxford, but it's got some reason that its charter is earlier. Yeah. No, that's what that's all about. Yeah. God started my university in the year aught. He talks about this, I think might be my favorite rumor. He talks about... um, I'm going to just quote it here. In the 15th century, a papal legate gravely ascribes the foundation of the schools at Paris to Bede, 
whom he declares <laughs> to have stopped there on his way to Rome. <laughs> the Venerable Bede was so busy. Starting the University of Paris. So busy. Well, why didn't he start did it in England? But whatever. <laughs> I, yeah, that's that's a great sort of thing, right? Because why why did they want to attribute it to Bede? You know, why not pick a random Frenchman? Yeah, there were a bunch of them. You could. Well, what has he got to say about the University of Paris? Does he talk about the strike? Yes, he does. Yep, he does. But I don't know that it... It's not going to tell us any more than we are. It's not anymore unless we want to enjoy his snark, because he's definitely there. <laughs> I'd like... But is his description of the of the fight a good one? Yes. He's very droll, I guess you would say. So he starts this section with the university, as we have already seen, and shall have frequent occasion to observe, lived upon its misfortunes. And what he means is that every time there's a conflict, they come out ahead. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely came out ahead after the strike. Hmm. Yeah. And he's talking about, um, in particular, this one, that you have this conflict and because of the strike the university ends up with more privileges than what it had before. So let me find my other one about how founding the university ruined everything. <laughs> oh, 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 yes. I want to hear that. Is this the same guy? No, this is a different, this is, this different is didn't sound like he thought that founding the university ruined his entire life. No, this is, oh, oh, here's this. This is just a lovely sidebar. Our buddy, um, Orderick. Orderick, we hear from him so often. <laughs> Orderick. <laughs> what does Orderick say? Orderick ha- uh, talks about the importance of copying books. Uh huh. And not spitting on them, I guess, and putting your cheese sandwich inside. <laughs> he tells a story about, um, and now here I'm quoting from The University of Medieval Life. He recounts the tale told by the abbot theory about a sinful monk who was nevertheless a devoted copyist and a fine illustrator of holy texts. When this monk died, so the story runs, God weighed each and every letter of his work against his many sins. In the end, the monk was saved from the clutches of the devil only because he had copied one letter more than the number of his sins. That is very much an orderic sort of story. It really is. Because you got to make a moral out of everything if you're orderic. Well, that would mean, wouldn't it, that those students that had to copy all their text out really kind of paid for a lot of the drinking. I, true. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah, I totally want to hear about the, how the universities ruined everything <laughs> from a medieval point of view. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. All right. So who okay. is this? So the French theologian and poet Philippus de Grivia um, became a, mag- a magister in at the University of Paris in 1206 and was the university chancellor from 1218 to 1236. So this is really early. This is the, the university is only about 50 years old at this point. Yes. So he uh, complains to his colleagues. We're, we're barely two generations into the university, and he's already whining about the good old days. <laughs> Quote, at one time, 
when each magister taught independently and when the name of the university was unknown. There were more lectures and disputation and more interest in scholarly things. Now, however, when you have joined yourselves together in a university, lectures and disputations have become less frequent. Everything is done hastily. Little is learnt, and the time needed for study is wasted in meetings and discussions. Ah, he's he's bitching think about faculty meetings! He is bitching about faculty meetings in 1208. I love that. Yeah, and this does. It's true. It it describes every faculty meeting ever. Ever. (laughs) I like the part about how people are thinking too fast, too. I mean, you're getting stuff done on this time schedule instead of just sitting around in somebody's um, living room talking about, you know, God and... Guys, we organized it and now it's no fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be fun. He wasn't even there for that. So he wasn't there then. He just is taking this on some kind of faith. Rashtel makes a really interesting point about the ways in which how the university organizes itself takes some aspects from the developing code of chivalry that's emerging at that time. And then some other things from the trade guilds, which are also emerging at that time. And I hadn't really thought about either one of those connections, but it's very interesting. He makes the point about how in terms of the chivalry stuff, a lot of the um, rituals and oaths that develop Uh, among the faculty and the students and, and even the kind of hazing things that take place when you're, in um, welcoming a new student and especially when you're um, graduating somebody to being a master, that those, those rituals have resonance with, with what's happening with the chivalry. Hmm. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Because I had not thought about that at all. And he points to, um, Something that ha- is happening very, very early that is very similar to the kind of hooding that we still do now. It was the recognition of the newcomer. That's the, the new, they have, this is also where he's talking about the overlap with um, chivalry. It was the recognition of the newcomer by his old master and other members of the profession, his incorporation into the Society of Scholars. The new master had a cap placed upon his head. Which is which is hooding? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We say we do the same thing now. Mm-hmm. We have a thing that we, you know, we we put it over people's heads, but that's the deal. You're in front that the person that you studied under yep. does the does the hooding, and you're in front of the faculty of at the place. Yeah, I remember telling one of my doctoral students that I was going to kill him if he if he didn't go through the hooding. I said, "You owe me." <laughs> I like that. You have to come to the, you have to go to the hooding. Yeah. It says here that that, that cap, um, which isn't a hood at this point, it's a, it's a cap, the Beretta, um, was regarded as, and I'm quoting here, um, Rashdell in one of his infamous footnotes, the Beretta was always regarded as the most important of the insignia of the office, of the office, bachelors taught uncovered. So getting, and that's still true, right? Getting to wear your hood, the fancy hood oh, is yeah. a big deal. That is a big deal. And you, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you walk with the other people that have their hoods, yes. Yeah, it's a good ceremony. The the students I've had who didn't want to do it and I talked them into it all have without exception said that they were glad they did it. It was just, it's just it's a really quite a moment in the hooding. I was at my father's hooding. It was at the University of Texas at Austin. And so he was in a black gown and the and the hood has orange in it. And I was five. I was so excited. I was like, that's my daddy. <laughs> I, I went home and went and wrote in my journal, daddy looked like a witch. <laughs> <laughs> black and orange, black and orange. The other really, really important piece that comes out of this strike is their, their the recognition that that's something that's available to them. The Pope right. issues a bull in 1230, 1231 that um, acknowledges that it gives the papal sanction to the right to strike. Yeah. Yeah. I learned all kinds of things I didn't know. Um, I did know that I did know that there was quite a lot of, of conflict between the town and the gown. I, I didn't know how many of the university-related things are going all the way back to the 12th century, or at least the early 13th century. I also didn't know that the the chancellor of the cathedral school in Paris tried really hard to squash. He saw the the um, emerging University of Paris as a threat and tried to get rid of it. Yeah, well, you would. Yeah, of course you would. Because, and indeed, the cathedral schools became really, they they didn't disappear, but they became uh, much smaller. They were a very different thing altogether. They were not a place where you went for higher education. So the other, and we don't necessarily have to include this, but I wanted to share it with you because I think it's, I think it's really um, uh, a useful observation about medieval universities. Uh Uh-huh. So now I'm back to the University of Medieval Life. The universities appeared on the scene not because of medieval students' amour siendia, love of knowledge for its own sake, but because these young men soon recognized the need to organize and protect themselves from rapacious townsmen and officials who were eager to profit from such a captive market. That said, it must be recognized that amour siendi did, in fact, have a critically important role to play. The concept of the university as a remote, otherworldly institution selflessly dedicated to the Aristotelian ideal of bios uh, theoreticos, intellectual training, has often been reviled, but there is much truth in it. It is this truth, in fact, that helped ensure the university's survival in the Middle Ages and its remarkable expansion in later times, up to and including our own day. Indeed, if universities had only been trade schools, they would almost certainly have disappeared during the Renaissance, like many other medieval institutions. Well, well, well. And we're seeing a shift again now away from the learning for learning's sake. Yeah. I don't think I'll be around to see kind of how it ends up, but... That's why the universities are, that's why the university system is in danger at the moment. Yeah, I, I think that, that that tension has been there, you know, for forever, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That do you have learning for learning's sake or are we training these guys to go do administration? Because that's a lot of what they're doing is both secular and church administration. That's right. That's right. 
and you need yeah you needed you needed this education in order to move up and be the tutor for the king's son and the bishop of durham mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i think that her observation that that the university isn't just a trade school is important because you know if it were in fact just like the guild of goldmongers or blacksmiths or whatever it wouldn't have survived past the middle ages it was a very striking observation to me yeah 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 i'll leave it there in. was there was something worth keeping yeah but it's but it has always been uh, it has always been a sort of problematic thing within the larger society what exactly is it what do you do with it and how do you keep it under control and what is it doing privilege yeah. but not too much privilege yeah still doing the same stuff gobbling up land uh the universities aren't growing the way they used to but well, boy they were growing they just gobble things up berkeley just you know <laughs> took over the little town of berkeley and there'll be places like I'm, I'm reminded of this um if you're in cambridge and you're walking on down to the river there's a place where you know, they, you have to like go around a building. You can't go straight to the river. You're on this thing called Mill Street, <laughs> which theoretically goes to the mill, which used to be there on the water. But you, it, you have to jag around. You know, you can't, it, and the reason is that a university building has been stuck there in the middle of things. So yeah, it's it's um, pretty interesting to look straight at the the tensions between universities and the towns that they're in um because it's not just sometimes we look at this and and look strictly at the ways in which uh students do have quite a lot of privilege right and that's that's still true universities like to try to handle things in-house there's very much still a inside amount of justice you know if you have one student accuse another student of sexual assault you would think that the thing to do would be to pick up the phone and call the cops. But but still, a lot of this gets handled in-house because you have this tradition of dealing with problems, even crimes, in-house. Yeah, and then it gets universities in trouble. Mm-hmm. The observation, though, that you have this captive audience and you can have, you know, innkeepers and people renting and the people selling them food and, and all of that stuff. And... Indeed, dormitories are still more expensive than it would be to rent an apartment. I, the last time I had to pay for my kid to have a year worth of, it was $12,000 just for his room and board. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. It's really much cheaper to live off campus <laughs> and eat ramen noodles. <laughs> You know, it reminds me to some extent of the of what it's like for uh, the townspeople of tourist towns, where oh, you're dependent yeah. on the your economy is dependent upon um, the visitors, and the visitors, bless their hearts, are <sighs> problematic. You know, they they don't know the customs of the area. Um, they they don't know really how to behave themselves. You know, I I am sitting in a tourist town, and you know, just at least just some, not as much as Taos, for instance, or Santa Fe, but 
Albuquerque still, you know, and it's, it's, and, and you can't go, you can't go to Old Town in the summer because the whole thing's just completely packed with people having come in from wherever it is they're coming in from. We need that. We need that money, but it's highly annoying if you want to go to the museum. I think that's a good connection. Um, I know Ireland struggles with this concept of paddy whackery. <laughs> where they're performing Irishness for the that's right that's for the, right for the tourists and it may yeah. not actually be how anybody lives anymore but yeah. it's what yeah. the American tourists are expecting mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's what people do yeah you you ch- and then you resent that <laughs> yes which I think is probably why I've found so many ruins with beer bottles and and cigarettes in them because you if you're a teenager growing up in that you have to resent it even more than you just resent everything Mm -hmm, when mm -hmm, you're a teenager mm -hmm. yeah because it's just the place where you live yeah so the townspeople of of uh the uh, latin quarter need the students to survive because that's how the economy has has been put together you know lodgings of there are the pubs that are there the lodgings that are there the shops that are there the bookshops that are there especially they're there because the students have needed them and so you have they've grown dependent on that particular uh income stream and so so and the income stream behaves very badly because it gets drunk and you know is not it's there and often does not understand the customs it's so yeah yeah a lot of tension yeah i almost it almost is surprising that there aren't more problems i'm no longer surprised that there were this many riots i'm surprised that there were this few (laughs) yeah it's it was it's like you know an entire power whole bunch of powder kegs all over europe and there's another um crime that we could cover at one point where and this was pretty serious. They kidnap this young woman uh, in in Bologna in 1321. A student is executed for kidnapping a notary's daughter from her father's house. Presumably, they're intending to abuse her. But yeah, that Bologna doesn't mess around with it. They he he and some of his buddies get executed. Huh? Yeah, I'd like to do that. Yeah, I'd like to learn more about Bologna. Let's put that on our list. So yeah, I thought that was I thought that was kind of interesting. And I'm really kind of stunned at how many students. We're not talking hundreds of students. The the universities grow fast. Yeah. And they become very big. They grew really, really fast because that was the only avenue you had to go through there in order to go into um the clerical trades, the you had to, to go anywhere up the church ladder, you had you had to go through there. There were about four thousand taverns in Paris. Oh my god. Which <laughs> sold seven hundred barrels of wine every day. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised there weren't more riots too. <laughs> so do, do we have any more on our stuff here? I was trying to see if I knew the actual number of students at Paris. I was trying to see if I had it because my memory is that it's in the thousands. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's all Pope Gregory. It's hard to wrap my head around the fact that we're 
within maybe 150 years, maybe 200 years, the date of the Beowulf manuscript and the founding of the University of Paris, because they just feel like such different time periods. But it changes so fast. I really didn't realize that the University of Paris becomes so big so quickly because I had sort of imagined, I guess in my head, I had sort of imagined there being, you know, a few dozen students, not 2000. <laughs> Like there were a, few, a couple dozen to begin with, you know, but it grew. We'll be back to the university when we get to Abelard. Yeah, he's, um, I didn't know that either, that that his street preaching was very important in the creation of the university. Yeah, yeah. And he had he had some trouble becoming a master. They, Abelard just had a lot of trouble is what Abelard He had. seems exactly like the sort of person to die in a duel with Aaron Burr <laughs> at age forty or whatever yeah, yeah <laughs> he yeah, seems like yeah. that personality he is yeah he manages to kind of like move it into some other things but yeah he's he's hot hot-headed okay so was there more no i can't i can't find the thing that says how many students there were but i i think it's a couple thousand okay the next time you hear from us we will be discussing the assassination of joanna of naples which is Italy in the 14th century. So, hey, we're moving. Hmm. So that's all for us today. This has been True Crime Medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today. But with <laughs> really, really the same, actually. <laughs> I know. Sometimes it's ex- the technology. No, I mean, the hidden people with sticks. Uh, this is no, this is absolutely the same as it is today. Some students got drunk and roughed up a tavern. It's like we're on Apple Podcast, iHeart Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, all the other places where the podcast hang out. Please leave a review. We'd really appreciate that. And you can reach us at truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word. And there you can find the show notes, which are written by Michelle, the transcripts, which are done for us by Lori Dietrich. And you can also reach us all through the webpage. And you can leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have medieval crimes that you think that we should discuss, please let us know. We will take that under advisement. And that's all for us today. Bye. Bye. Bye.